Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another great edition of the Millennium Live podcast series. I'm co-founder Millennium Alliance. For those of you who don't know, Alex Sobel. We got a great guest today. You guys know by now that when I jump onto the podcast, it's someone cool, someone unique, someone that you probably may not be too familiar with in terms of their name, but has had a, a very exciting career and has done some amazing work. The person that we're going to be speaking with today is Terry Zuplat. Um, just so you guys know, Terry, he's got about 25 years of experience providing leaders in government, business, NGOs, philanthropy, and entertainment with strategic communications and speech writing support to inspire audiences in the United States and around the world. He was one of President Barack Obama's longest serving speechwriters from 2009 to 2017. Terry helped craft nearly 500 speeches on issues such as global security, international econ, U.S. foreign and defense policy, entrepreneurship, development, and human rights. As a special assistant to President Obama and senior director of speech writing at the National Security Council staff, he accompanied President Obama on visits to more than 40 countries. And while serving as the deputy director of the White House speech writing office in the West Wing during President Obama's second term, Terry helped oversee and edit the work of a team of speech writers, assisted with State of the Union addresses and produced innovative content to reach new audiences through social media. Before Terry was doing that and working in the White House with the sitting president, he was appointed the director of speech writing to the Secretary of Defense at the time, which is William Cohen, uh, managed a staff of four writers from 98 to 2001, and he earned the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. He is a professional staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, or he was, I'm sorry, from 2001 to 2002, and he previously served on the staff of the Commission on Protecting and Reducing Government Secrecy, chaired by Senator Daniel Moynihan from 95 to 97. In addition to a number of other things, I could go on and on, but I wanted to give as much in a, in a window of time that I had to introduce Terry with his um, very impressive background. But with no further ado, Terry, welcome to the podcast. We are thrilled, and I especially am thrilled to have you today. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Our pleasure. So Terry, like with all interviews that I do, I want to start before we get into the all the great stuff that you did in your career and in public service, which I think a lot of people that are listening to this are going to find very interesting, kind of a window into the world that you are in that not many people get to see that we only hear about. I wanted to talk about a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, and kind of what your what your early years were like. As I understand, you were born in Boston, Massachusetts, spent your youth up until I believe you left for college in the Boston, in the Massachusetts area. Is, is that right? In Massachusetts, right. I was born in born in Boston. Uh, my father was a uh, Ukrainian immigrant, came to this country when when he was five. My mother's from a big uh, Irish Catholic family in Boston, so we've got these two great great cultures uh, merging in our family. And uh, I grew up uh, in a town, uh, Falmouth, on uh, Cape Cod. I, I would sense from your background that there must have been from your upbringing, from your parents, some sort of emphasis early on on the importance of education. Was that a big part of your upbringing? Absolutely. Actually, I have two sisters. My folks uh, always emphasize our education and they emphasize an awareness of the world as well. I was very lucky. You know, we, I said, you know, I grew up in, in Falmouth, Massachusetts, which is a few towns over from, from Hyannis, uh, Hyannis Port, you know, where the, the Kennedys had their, their compound. And so uh, we were constantly surrounded by politics and and, and by the mystique of that. And it was something that I sort of opened my eyes to very early in my life. For those of you who don't know, Terry went to undergrad at American University in Washington, DC. I'm curious, 
was the choice to go to American because it was a school in DC? Was there a specific reason you wanted to go to American? Did you only want to go to school in DC? How did how did that come about as your choice for college? Yeah, sort of by the time I was in high school and a high school senior, I was fascinated by politics, by government, very active in, in student government. And I knew that in one way or another, I wanted to make that my life. I wanted to, whether it was politics or journalism, and I, I really wanted to be in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I applied to a whole bunch of schools in Washington. And one of the things that that really appealed to me about American is that they really focused on the hands-on aspect of it, not just the theory of politics and government and how our societies are structured and how our governments are devised, but really pushed us to get out there uh, into the city. We're incredibly grateful to American University. I had internships in the U.S. Senate for a senator named John Kerry. <laughs> I studied abroad and had an internship in the British Parliament. And my senior year in college, incredible opportunity came along to have an internship at the White House. And I was assigned to the speechwriters for then President Bill Clinton. So there I was, 22 years old, college senior, getting to see the inner workings of the White House and how his speeches came together. And once in a while, he even let me take a crack at, at a few speeches. <laughs> I had to completely rewrite them because I didn't know what I was doing. But that was when I realized that I just thought that writing speeches for a president, helping a president tell America's story to the world, has got to be one of the coolest jobs in the world and something I'd want to do someday. Yeah. I mean, I personally think it's probably top, top three for me outside of being a professional athlete would be, um, would be writing speeches for the president of the United States. When, when you were in your high school years, when you had this interest or desire to potentially go into public service or be in the political world, was it something that you were exposed to through experiences, you know, with your family, or did you read something, or did you see something on TV? Where did the desire, or where did the the certainty that that's the road you wanted to go? Where do you think that came from? Where did it come from? I'm I'm not exactly sure where that desire to be in the public sector came from, but it was something that was certainly nurtured by my parents and my my teachers you know, all, in all sorts of ways, you know, in Massachusetts, we have sort of a youth student government day where they invite students from all over the state to come and sit in the state house, in the chairs of the state senators and kind of have a mock government, you know, they unfortunately wouldn't let us actually pass any real laws, but you know, <laughs> we got the experience and that was, you know, teachers who encouraged me to do that. And I was involved in our student government, again, teachers facilitating that, encouraging me to, to step up and you know, run for things and be involved and put my name out there. I'm very grateful to have teachers and parents who cared enough that, that apparently they saw something in me or some interest that that I didn't necessarily always know how to how to pursue, but they they opened paths to me and you know, I'm still incredibly grateful for the, my teachers and parents. And when you did this this internship your senior year in the White House, was that your first time you were exposed or thought about going into professional speech writing? I think so, um, because until that time, you know, like a lot of, like uh, a lot of young people, especially people in Washington, probably too many people. I, I thought I, would, you know, I was going to be a lawyer. Um, yeah. I was going to go. I was going to become a lawyer. And I was going to argue cases before the Supreme Court. So, so in some way, I guess those are speeches too. The law school didn't quite work out. You know, <laughs> I took the LSAT. <laughs> uh, didn't quite get the scores I needed to to get into the schools that I wanted. And it was in the course of preparing to take the LSAT a second time that I 
got my first real speech writing job, paying full speech writing job as a speech writer to the Secretary of Defense. And I was about, you know, 24 years old or so. And uh, that's when I really started to, to realize that, wow, you could actually do this for a living. This is something, mm. you know, helping a leader figure out what their story is, what makes them unique, how to, how to connect with an audience, how to, how to tailor yourself to an audience. And so, you know, again, 20, 24 years old, traveling around the world with the Secretary of Defense, helping him speak to, you know, not just military audiences, but civilian audiences, not just the United States, but around the world. And one of the fascinating things about that experience was you know, something we don't see enough of anymore, which is William Cohen, the Secretary of Defense at that time, he's a Republican senator from Maine who chose to serve in the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton. Mm. And that doesn't, that has not happened nearly enough in our country where we have, have uh, people willing to cross the aisle and work together and put politics aside. And so for me, that was an incredible learning experience and a reminder of sort of how, how politics ought to be. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that because the, the, the only story I know of is when Obama won and he kept then the existing secretary, Bob Gates, who I know is is a Republican, which I thought was was very unique. And I know it drew parallels to a very famous book. I'm sure you're familiar with um, the it's Team of Rivals. Team of Rivals. Yeah, yeah Team of Rivals. So I know I know there's a lot of parallels to um, the age of Lincoln. So your your first sort of professional paying job was working as a speech writer for the then Secretary of Defense. That was the first post-college paying job that you had. Is that right? Uh, it was my first speech writing job just be, right after college. The very first job I had was uh, something you mentioned in your in your intro, and it's got a very uh, <laughs> very intriguing title, uh, Secrecy Commission. Uh, ah. Basically, uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York uh, and others set up a commission to investigate and study the national security apparatus in our country, DOD, CIA, NSA, all these agencies that classify a tremendous amount of information every day. And the sort of opening starting premise of that commission and that work was, you know, why do we classify so much and why do we declassify so little? You know, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan being sort of the social scientist that he was, you wanted to understand the incentive structures and the institutional arrangements. Why was it? What were the incentives that led so many people to classify so much every single day? And then the incentive structures that led the same people to declassify so little. And so that was, I mean, to come out of college uh, as someone who was interested in government and then to be able to basically spend two years traveling around the government into some of the most intricate and least understood corners of our government, the most classified corners of our government, uh, was incredibly eye-opening and is something that I've continued to draw on ever since. Yeah, that sounds exciting, especially being, you know, 22, 23, doing that kind of stuff. It sounds like you must have been pretty, a pretty special case to be, and, and tell me if this is, if, 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 if it was more normal than I think it is, that at the age of 25 to be in such a prominent speech writing position for a sitting secretary of defense, it, it would, it would seem to me that the defense department would, would think to bring on people with years and years of experience writing speeches previously. Were you surprised to have been tapped for that job or age doesn't really come into factor for the, for those type of roles? So, so yes and no. So on one hand I was, uh, yeah, I had never served in the military. I had never worked in the defense department. I think maybe I had been in the Pentagon once or twice for a meeting. 
So, you know, <laughs> other than that, I was totally qualified. But I think what probably made the difference was there was a team of speechwriters already there, very experienced, very knowledgeable. And what they were looking for was someone to bring in who was young, who they could train, who they could get up to speed and over time hand more uh, responsibility to. You know, I was, you know, whatever, 23, 24 years old. I was, that was cheap labor. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, and again, I wasn't, you know, I was hired as a junior member. What happened was in the course of one or two years, everybody above me either, you know, got promoted to something else or moved on to other opportunities. And all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like a battlefield promotion. I'm the most senior person in the room and became the chief speechwriter. I guess I had proved myself over the, the first year or two. So on one hand, it was, uh, you know, speech writing is generally a younger person's profession attend. I mean, the hours are horrendous. It's a pretty brutal pace, the travel, the hours, the, the you know, the sort of um, emotional <laughs> uh, pressures of writing every single day, putting, putting your work out there and having everybody rip it apart and have to do it again. So, you know, if you look, I always tell people, you know, look at whenever you see a picture of a president or a senator or a congressman or governor or secretary of a cabinet, and you see them surrounded by staff, and you notice that there's one very young person in the room, chances are that's their speechwriter. <laughs> and what I love about that is that, you know, the chief lawyer is probably someone who's been around for 20, 30 years. The, the chief policy advisor is probably someone who's been there 20, 30 years. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you can write, if you can, if you can handle the pressure, um, if you can work with someone and have that mind meld and that collaboration, then it really doesn't matter how old you are. And so, yeah, you see a lot of young people in, the, in this profession, but still, you don't, you don't see, you know, 25 year old running the, running the whole office. You know, that was, that was unique. I was, I was very lucky and proud to do that. That's great. I want to talk about how the teaming up with the Obama campaign came about, because in between your role at the Defense Department and up until, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it was about 2007, 2008, you worked more as kind of like a freelance consultant, providing support for corporate, political, philanthropy, and helped the teams at the DNCs for different elections. When did the opportunity or how did the opportunity come about to be totally dedicated to the Obama campaign and then the Obama administration? Sure. Well, you know, the speech writing world, particularly in, in Washington, is a pretty small one. And a lot of us know each other. We've worked together. We've suffered together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've cried together. And um, I was a volunteer at the uh, 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston where we, uh, I was out there on the floor that night and we heard this keynote address from yep. this young state senator from Illinois named Barack did, Obama. Did you, know, did you know much about him before that speech? No, no, I'd, I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of him before that. Uh, somebody had heard or knew something is going to be a good speech. We all wanted to be out there for it. We sure. you know, made sure we were out there on the floor. And then I, I volunteered again in 2008 when he became the, the nominee. And through that experience, got to know some of the Obama speechwriters. There were only three or four of them at the time on the, on the campaign. And when they won, they had to build out a team. They, they had a whole lot more speeches to write. So they reached out a few weeks after the election, asked if I wanted to you know, throw my hat in the ring. And they gave me a speechwriting test, which is pretty common in our world. I've given them to many people, and they gave one to me. And uh, I guess I passed. Um, it took a few months to get started, but I but I was in the was in the White House in the West Wing in a few months in early 2009. That's how it happened. That's awesome. You were there from beginning to end, basically, from the time 
the administration got off and running till you were there for the final days as well because i saw it right. i saw in your bio 2017 so i assume right. you were you were there in january of that year when it was it was time to leave right I, I wrote my first speech for president obama in may of 2009 so you know missed the first few months and i walked out the white house gates uh in january 2017 you know the the day of the uh, you know, we went to andrews air force base and watch the president the first lady get on the plane yep. and uh, depart and so yeah pretty much from beginning to end and it's interesting because i i was telling you when we were when we were offline that one of my favorite interviews was with Ben Rhodes. And I remember he said to me, like yourself, he was there from beginning to end so much so that he was on that plane on the 20th leaving DC. And he said, you know, what a, what a weird, interesting day to say the least. I I can't imagine. I try to put myself in your, your guys shoes so dedicated. And I mean, there's a lot we could talk about, about the differences between one administration to the other, but just the idea of leaving a place that you guys had spent so much time and, you did. You guys have done such great work. I want to. I want to backtrack a little bit. I didn't want to jump so far to your end in the White House, but I thought it was interesting to note that you were there for a full for a full eight years. I want to talk about speech speech writing in general because, from what I know about President Obama, who I know a lot about his life from what I've read and and stuff that I've I've watched and all that kind of good stuff. From what I understood from the inner workings of how he prepared for speeches, he he got quite involved in working with speechwriters and editing and kind of knowing what the general or what most of his speech would say before he would give it. I'm curious to know if that's sort of normal with most presidents or leaders, or do most leaders just don't take the time to do that and just read what they see in the teleprompter come time to give that speech? Right. Well, I've only worked for one president, so I, I, I only know about other presidents, what I've, what I've read. What I will say, you know, I, I think Barack Obama being, having been an author himself, having been a great speechwriter himself, you know, he, he, he sort of remarked one time, I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. Uh, <laughs> in our defense, he, was also, he also said, I'm a better strategist than my strategist. I'm a better communications advisor than my communications advisor. But, um, you know, it was true. And, you know, he... He wrote that speech in Boston in 2004 himself. You know, he had people send ideas, but but he was the lead speechwriter on that. And so he uh, came to the White House with a deep understanding of the importance of storytelling and the importance of narrative and the importance of structure. I know a lot of speechwriters who sit there and agonize trying to find the perfect line that they think is going to you know make the speech. And it's going to be etched in memorials for generations to come. And, you know, Barack Obama always told us to, you know, not worry about the lines, get the story right, get your narrative, get your theme right first. That's the most important thing. And the lines will come, maybe, maybe they will, maybe they won't. You know, speech really is a story that you're taking, you're taking the audience on a journey. And if there was a big speech coming up, he'd have us up to the Oval Office. We'd go up there, we'd sit down and what was wonderful about it is, you know, it wasn't 30 people and you could easily see these meetings getting out of control. He has to give a trips coming up. He has to give a speech, a big speech in Europe. Well, you might, you could easily think of 10, 15 people who should be in that room. The national security sure. officer, the our Europe lead, the country lead, the economic lead, the military lead. 
But really, what was so wonderful about these meetings is that they tended to be just, you know, one or two speechwriters and maybe maybe the national security advisor. And the president wanted that way because it was his chance to really, you know, take a moment, take a break, and sit and reflect on what he was trying to achieve in that speech. And sometimes he might have, you know, the theme, the core idea in mind, the headline that we want out of this speech. Other times he had really thought through the outline, uh, point one, point two, point three. And so we were so fortunate to have those times with him because, and this is true for any organization, not the White House, but any company, any business, any organization, you know, in the one to two weeks leading up to the speech, everybody's trying to get their, their bits in there. Everyone's trying to hang their you know, their idea, their proposal, their program in there. We think the boss should say this. If you don't know what the boss wants, it's hard to navigate and decide and adjudicate those discussions. But having sat down with him at the very beginning helped shape that process. And so, you know, I'm always fascinated when I hear a CEO or the head of an organization or a politician say, I just, I just don't have time to, to meet with my speechwriters and tell them what I want. It's their job to know what I want, um, I suppose, through osmosis or telepathy. Yeah. Um, we're supposed to be mentalists, but, you know, if Barack Obama, the president of the United States, with all his responsibilities, could find the time to do this, if, uh, then, then anyone can. And sure. that's, you know, and he, that was just the beginning. Of course, there was the editing process as well. And you always, um, you know, once, sometimes they were line edits here and there, and you might escape. But other times, if, if, if he had something on his mind, he'd break out the yellow legal pad and he'd write out longhand. And there's pictures online of, of pages and pages of, of longhand lines where, where he, you know, rewrote the speech. So he's, yeah, very involved. And I think, again, he understood um, the importance of speeches. Speeches can help a leader think through a problem. They can help think through an issue. It can be a forcing mechanism that forces the organization to confront inconsistencies and in, in policies or programs. So a speech, speech can do a lot of things. It's not just outward communication. Fascinating stuff. Was there a, an area of policy or an area of, of focus that you mostly wrote about, or did you touch upon a number of different issues? So uh, for the most part, it was foreign policy. Um, the chief foreign policy speechwriter for the eight years was Ben Rhodes, uh, one of the president's key national security advisors. Yep. And, and I was the other one. So he had about two dedicated foreign policy speechwriters throughout, throughout his eight years, the two of us. So for the most part, that's what I focused on. So the president made a trip overseas. Uh, it also included homeland security. Unfortunately, that included uh, terrorist attacks here in the United States and overseas, you know, too many mass shootings. So yeah. all sort, you know, speeches to military academies, we, the, all of these things, um, all of these things fell in, into the portfolio. I would think I've seen every speech Barack Obama's ever given on video, whether I saw it live or I saw it on YouTube 10 times after. There's a couple speeches that my favorites, I would say. One of them, I would assume you had a hand in writing when he, I think he was at American University talking about the Iran, the Iran nuclear deal. Do you, do you, I think it was American. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? That particular yeah, speech? He and his uh, national security team had uh, forged a, a deal with Iran that yep. would stop Iran from developing nuclear weapon. But in order for it to take effect, it had to you know, make its way through the Senate. So uh, where it takes uh, you know, 60 votes to block something. Sure. So, um, he, had to, he had to hold, hold the line and, and get enough Democrats to, to support that. 
Um, so Ben uh, Rhodes uh, led a very sort of coordinated and comprehensive effort to make sure people understood the facts about the deal. And as part of that campaign, the president gave a big speech at American University where he and Ben worked on this speech. Yeah, um, I love that speech. To, to, you know, make the case. And, you know, to me, that, that's one of the great examples of, of how to make an argument, how to deal with criticisms, how to respond point by point. And he does that. If anyone reads that speech, you see, he doesn't just make the case for what he believes is the right policy. He acknowledges that there's a debate. He acknowledges that other people are saying these things. And one by one, he goes through and offers his best rebuttal to each of those things. I think that that was one of the ways that he distinguished himself. You know, he, you know, former, you know, he went to law school, former constitutional law professor, valued treating us as adults, acknowledging that there is disagreements and making his best case for why, why he felt the way he did. So I was there. So Ben was the lead on that speech. I had the opportunity to go there uh, for the speech. And so that, that was pretty special to be sort of back, back, you know, there's a school where that had helped me get my start, had got me that first internship in the yep. White House to be able to come back with a president and be there when he gave this speech at my alma mater. That was, that was pretty special. There's a line in that speech that I remember that I loved. I don't use Facebook that much, but whenever I, I, I see a quote I like, I put it in my Facebook quote so I know it will stay somewhere. And I remember a line from it. I ha- I'm looking at it now. Worry less about being labeled weak. Worry more about getting it right. I thought that was just a very powerful line. I love that speech. I remember other um, favorite speeches of mine that he gave after the, the incident with the police, um, some police officers getting killed in Dallas. I thought he gave a phenomenal speech where I always say to people, if, if you want to see Barack Obama at his best, especially in a very tense situation, I thought that that was one of my favorite speeches he gave. And, and one of the ones he was most famous for before he became president was the one um, that he gave in Philadelphia about Reverend Wright, which I actually watched in the last six months. I watched it again. Phenomenal speech, just nailed so many different aspects of so many issues that Americans, especially American politicians, have been hesitant to confront, but he did it in such a way where it was, you knew it was coming from a good place and he was being, and he was being accurate. Look at that speech and what he does. Again, he goes through point by point by point, yep. uh, the criticisms that have been made against him. And, you know, just for me on a personal level, uh, like I said, I was not, I was not on the Obama campaign at the very beginning. Uh, but that speech for me, as it was for, for so many people, was really a defining moment because here was someone who came along and again, whether you agreed with his politics or not, uh, he was gonna tackle two of the most difficult issues in our, in our history, which is race and, and faith. And, and, and thirdly, where they intersect. And my God, those, any one of those is fraught to handle all three at the same time. Yep. And I thought, listening to that speech, here was someone who was willing to you know, speak to us as adults, someone who was willing to acknowledge complexity and that there, sometimes there are you know, the, the sort of slogans that politicians so often toss around sort of gloss over deeper complexities. And that, that was the moment for me when I was full on board Barack, with Barack Obama. That was, that was when I realized that was the person I wanted to be president. I remember that speech, it was, it was so on the money that I think that was a, a big moment for him in his campaign. And I read twice, I read through 
David Axelrod's memoir, Believer, after he had left the White House. And I remember a part of the book where he talks about that situation when the Reverend Wright video or whatever it was had come out. And I remember him talking about where the advice that all the people around Obama in terms of how to handle that situation was a little bit different than what he wanted to do. And, you know, it was a, I guess in their mind, it was a political risk or there were some risks to the way in which he wanted to do it. And now knowing that most people running for president probably wouldn't have been so vulnerable and been so honest, you know, he had the wind at his back. He was, I, I don't know, I don't remember if he had won the nomination yet um, or, he, no, he hadn't won the nomination yet. So he had taken a risk to do the right, to do what he felt was the right thing was another reason that I, I had built up so much respect for him. And that speech in Dallas was just, and, and also I just think on the top of my head, the speech um, after the um, church shooting in Charleston, there was just so many unbelievable uh, speeches that he gave, which for me talking to you as one of his lead speechwriters is, is a real treat. There's actually, you know, there's a thread through all of those, you know, each of those had a different lead speechwriter, but really the ultimate speechwriter was Barack Obama himself. Sure. And the, one of the guiding principles that he had through all of those was address the elephant in the room. Don't, don't uh, try to push things under the rug that we all know to be true. And I think that's where he got, you know, again, for me with the race speech, you know, Philadelphia speech, uh, that was one of the things that drew me to him. And that's something that he tried to do throughout his presidency. Again, you can like his politics or, or dislike his politics. But I know as someone who was there, when he sat down to give a speech, he saw it as an opportunity to speak, you know, candidly to the country and to not gloss over things that are uncomfortable or awkward or to pretend there aren't nuances and complexities that make decisions or very hard. Because this is the reality he was living every day. Sure. He said that, you know, if the decisions were easy, they wouldn't have come up to my desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so often in our politics, we hear folks on television saying how easy, you know, how easy things are um, or simple solutions and, and bumper sticker slogans. And Who knew healthcare would be so hard, right? Someone said that once. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anybody who had been living in the United States for decades. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, that's something that I think that's something that all leaders can learn, whether in business, philanthropy, young activist, is, is just tell the truth. You know, be honest with how hard these things are. Don't pretend that there are easy solutions to any of these things or that it's quick. I think so many people do that. That's one of the reasons, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons that people get so cynical. You know, again, there's a lot of reasons that people are cynical and rightly so, but one of it is why, why aren't things happening faster? I think if more people understood how complicated government is and and how difficult it is to to deal with some of these complex issues? Sure, but he he was he was always trying to do that. Even as he even as he offered bold visions or offered you know a way forward, he always acknowledged the the realities that we live in. If I imagined myself, whether I was a speechwriter or I was an aide or I was someone that the president had trusted, did you ever feel like he needed to counterpunch a little bit more? Because the re- the reason I asked this, and I talked about this with Ben Rhodes a little bit. And, and tell me if you think this is accurate. Around the time I developed a, a respect and an admiration for Barack Obama, I generally just became interested in politics and news. So, you know, I, I watched different slices of media, whether it be online or on TV. And I always felt, even though I never met Barack Obama, I always felt that a good portion of the country was being told 
untruths about him, about him personally, about the work he was doing, about the outcomes of his work. That frustrated me as a fan and as a supporter of his, because I always say to people that are on the other side of the political aisle, I say, I just feel like if you don't think Barack Obama was a a really good, if not terrific president, it's because you didn't get to see and get a real analysis of the work that he did and the man that he was. And I wonder for someone like you that was sitting in the room with him, writing speeches and talking to the public, if maybe looking back more so, if you felt it would have been worth it for him to not in an unkind way, go after the other side for the stuff that was completely either untrue or very heavily fabricated. But if you felt he should have maybe touched upon it a little more, which the reason I asked that, because I sense from his personality, he probably felt it was better to kind of leave it alone, no drama, Obama type stuff. But I wonder if you feel like he should have counterpunched it more, if that would have helped him. Yeah, again, as someone was there, I mean, there are many, many moments and speeches where he, I feel he hit back pretty hard in you know politics being a, a contact sport. He often did it with humor. Every president faces criticism. Every, you know, this is a very polarized country and untruths have been said about presidents for 200 years and their policies are always criticized. I, I do think what was different was that there were deliberate coordinated efforts to undermine him uh, in terms of who he was, not simply his policy or his policy, yes. but who he was. And specifically two things, that he was, uh, he was born in Hawaii, but they tried to say he wasn't. He and his family were Christian, are Christian, and his critics tried to say that he wasn't. And you ask yourself, well, why would those two things be so important to you? What is it you're trying to convey? What is it you're trying to insinuate? That he doesn't belong. Yeah. It's very clear what, what he's done yeah. is that he does, he is not one of us. He is not from here. He is not one of us. He's the other. Yes. And we've seen that throughout history. This is what this is what is often done to, you know, uh, religious and and ethnic and racial minorities all over the world. Sadly, it, it seems something all too deeply ingrained in us. And we saw that with him. And so you, uh, any over and over again, a time, a very deliberate effort to portray him as the, another. And even towards the end of the administration, there were chunks of the country that still believed he wasn't born here. Or sure. chunks of the country that still didn't believe that he was uh, Christian as, 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 he, as he was. Yes. So, that, that, that goes beyond politics, that goes beyond any particular policy, and that goes to issues of uh, deep, deep issues of race. And, and I think it's only natural that the first black president was going to face that. He wasn't under any illusions. You know, there were those famous chants during the 2008 campaign, the crowds would break into chants saying race doesn't matter, race doesn't matter. Yep. You know, we've learned a lot through, uh, particularly the last uh, 10 years or so of how you know, longstanding racial inequities and systemic inequities are still with us and shape so much of our of our country today and our world. So, um, yeah, I think it was different, and I think I think it'll be different for it'll be different for the first female president. It'll be different for the first gay president. It'll be, yep. it'll be the first Latino president. Now, go through the list, and all of those firsts will have to confront uh, something similar. 
because there will be a there will be a subsection of the country that does not see them as as one of us. It, it would have if I was him, my personality, if I was in his role and the type of stuff that was being said, both about him personally and about about related to policy, I, I would just be frustrated because so much of what he did and was trying to do really was to help large amounts of people, regardless of political stripe. And I felt that what was interesting about the Trump presidency, what I what I thought about that was is everything that people that were anti-Obama, everything they lied about him, everything they ripped him for, all these flaws they think he had, they didn't like about his personality. Then a guy comes along and actually has those. He's not really Christian. And then you have Trump come on and prove that, well, he couldn't name a Bible verse, or they talk about caring about family and being a devoted husband and a father, and which Barack Obama obviously was, and then Trump comes along. It's like, it was never, it just proved with the hundreds of things that Obama got picked at by the right, or the people that disliked him the most, that here comes a guy that's actually every single thing you said you didn't like, but now it doesn't bother you. I thought that we could spend the whole hour talking about that. That whole dichotomy was interesting. But I, I remember when in the 2016 race, even friends of mine that were uh, historically voted Republican who weren't wanting to vote for Trump but ended up doing so in 2016, I think, they were under the illusion that certain things about Obama's record that were good were untrue. And and to me, that was like a, that was a really big thing that bothered me because there's so many things that happened in the Obama presidency that... Trump tried to take credit for when he was president. And that type of stuff really bugged me. And I know there's this, for most presidents, you don't really say stuff after a presidency and stuff like that. But I just felt that even if 10% of the people that were being convinced to think, think, think things that were untrue about him as a person and as a politician, you know, I wonder, you know, not only what the 2016 outcome would be, but what outcomes would be, what we would be experiencing right now. And I just always felt bad about that. I always felt bad about the fact that I sensed as just someone watching him on TV or seeing him in interviews that he didn't want to be in the mud and he didn't want to get into that type of stuff. But I wonder if he looks back now and because he didn't counter as much as maybe his ardent fans would have wanted to, if he thinks that that was a mistake. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is something, something in human nature. It's like the old uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe and disregard the rest. You know, it's uh it's confirmation bias. It's uh, you believe the worst about the other team and the best about your own. That's sadly, that's the reality we live in. And you, you know, I say one of the things that I appreciated about uh, President Obama was, you know, he, he was it's not that he didn't care about all that, but and he was mindful of it, but he didn't let it uh, shape everything he did. He didn't see, you know, when he went out to give a speech, he he recognized that, you know, there's chunk of the country that just, you know, wasn't going to listen, didn't really matter what he was going to say, by virtue of, you know, his party, by virtue of who he was, his background, the way he looked, there was just, there are just certain people aren't going to listen. And um, so there, you know, speeches, speeches are not magic, they, they, they can't change the world. Uh, words alone cannot change the world. Um, they can't always break through. So um he was mindful of that, but I think, you know, he, he would always go out there and whether it was the American University speech or so many other speeches, go out and make, make the best, most honest case he felt he could make for what he was trying to do and the direction he was trying to, to, to lead the country and particularly around the world where, you know, I got to, you know, be in the room so many times when he gave those speeches 
you know, to young people uh, in Vietnam and Laos and Indonesia and 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 South Africa and you know all over you know South America, that you know there was a there was an appeal that he had, and I think people cross cultures appreciated that. I agree. I want to go into just before we finish up. You've, you've been kind enough to give me almost an hour, maybe just a couple fun questions I want to ask you for me. Hopefully, the listeners enjoy this as well. I'll end on that note that you know the way I summed it up is that in 2008 and in 2012, the country got the president we deserved. And then I just feel like the way he was treated on the way out by too many people in this country, the same could be said about 2016, the country got the president deserved. I'll leave that there. Kind of some rapid fire questions for me personally, I wanted to I wanted to ask you. First time you ever walked into the White House, what was that experience like? Was it what you imagined it to be? I ask everybody this, by the way. So I want to I want to see how your questions stack up to some of your colleagues who I've I've interviewed. Um, I know you said it was your senior year of college. I asked this question because I've only been on the East Wing of the White House. I, I will get to the West Wing one day. And I have a, from Google imaging, videos, floor plans, movies, you know, I, I think I got a good idea of what it's like there. I'm curious, though, mm-hmm. the first time you walked into the West Wing and had gone through it, was it what you expected? Was it as... Um, was it emotional? Was it, what was it like? What was that experience like the first time you were there? I think the first time that I was in the West Wing was in that May 2009. I had, oh. I had in the West Wing. I mean, as an intern, I don't think I ever made it. And as an intern in college, I don't think I ever made it into the West Wing. You couldn't just walk over there? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most interns don't go in the West Wing unless you're summoned or unless that's where you work. Certainly back then. But the first time I that I went in the West Wing in a meaningful way was, you know, May 2009. I had just written my first speech for for President Obama. It was his first address to the one of the military academy commencements. In this case, the Naval Academy, and we were in David Axelrod's office, a few doors down from the Oval Office. Uh, Ax would, you know, read our speeches aloud. He was an old newspaper man, and uh, we were in there going over some speeches. And the president walked in, and he's carrying a football, tossing a football around. I don't know if someone had given it to him that day or asked to see who the new guy was and thanked me for the speech. And, you know, we got ready to go and headed off to the speech uh, shortly thereafter. So, I mean, to first time in the West Wing, meet the President of the United States, get some good feedback on, on your work. Nothing better than that. I mean, that's, I couldn't ask for anything else. And, you know, when you first walk in, I mean, everyone always talks about this, you know, the West Wing, it's not the West Wing you see on television. It's not the it's West small, Wing. Right? It's really small. The hallways are narrow. The offices are small. The ceilings are low. It's very, you know, there's carpet. It's very intimate. It's um, it's a really tight space. And um, yeah, so you first walk in, it's a little bit of an out-of-body experience. You're telling yourself, you know, am I really here? <laughs> you know, this place. And then it's time to do the work. And so you better be focused. You better be listening to the person talking to you. Uh, I did listen to what Axe was saying about the speech and, you know, and, and focus on what the president was saying. So, you know, it is uh, it, the, the awe of it never wears off. Um, there's an I was going to ask you that. That was going to be a question. Does the awe of working in the West Wing ever wear off? No. And, you know, it doesn't. And there's uh, I, I felt it. You know, I felt it every day. I passed through the those iron gates to go in. I knew that I was incredibly fortunate to be able to have this time. To, to be able to do that work, 
you never know how long you're gonna last. You serve at the pleasure of the president. And if the president is not pleased, you, uh, your, your time is over. Um, you don't have the same kind of job protections that they have in the rest of the world. And so you know that your time is, your time is precious there. And there, there's an old saying that, you know, the day you no longer feel that awe is the day you should probably leave. And uh, because it's for every person that works there, there's, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 who would gladly do your job for you, who would appreciate the honor that it is. And so I, I, you know, I never lost that sense of awe. I never, I never forgot how lucky I was to be there. I loved doing this work. You know, it got my adrenaline going every day uh, to be able to help, uh, again, politics aside, to be able to help the president of the United States represent our country, particularly around the world, to try to show the best of America to the world is something that never got old for me. And I, at the time I felt like I could do it forever. You know, obviously I have a, I have a wife, I have kids. I couldn't do it forever. The hours were, sure. were horrendous, but um, I loved it. And it was the best professional experience of my life. And just to follow up with the West Wing, first time in the Oval Office experience, I would say is it what you expected it to be? I mean, the reason I ask is that when I, when I chatted with, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, who used to be the number two at the HHS, she said to me what was interesting about it. She said the room was extremely bright. She remembered walking into the room and thinking, this kind of feels like a movie set, <laughs> that it was really bright. Sure. And that's what she told me she took for it. And I'm curious, first time in the Oval Office, what that was like for you. Yeah, you know, this is kind of, uh, this is probably not the answer you're expecting or the answer. Uh, I honestly don't remember what my first. Uh, visit was to the Oval Office. So we went, I was, you know, fortunate to go in many times. Um, you know, sometimes it was to get good edits on a speech. <laughs> sometimes it was to find out that, you know, he, he wasn't so happy with the draft. Yeah. So they weren't always wonderful experiences. But, um, you know, again, whether it was the first time or the last time, you're there to do your work, you're there to do a job, you need to listen, you need to focus, you need to be present and in that moment. But still, if there was a moment when he was talking to somebody else, you know, I'd have to sort of stop my, stop my mind from wandering because yeah, you're in a place that, that presidents have been uh, working in and making history in for over a hundred years. I mean, this is where Roosevelt navigated the second world war, where Kennedy navigated the Cuban missile crisis, mm -hmm. you know, Reagan and Bush navigated the end of the cold war. I mean, it, it all happened literally right there. Um, and so, yeah, I, again, if, if that doesn't, make your heart flutter a little bit, then, then maybe you're not thinking hard enough about it. But, you know, for, for, for a lot of us, particularly the people who are, who are there more than I was, you know, it is, it is also a workspace. It is history. It is a sacred place in our country, but it is a workspace. And it's where you need to pay attention, take your notes, uh, and make sure you know what's going on. So in the moment, you don't always have the time to, to reflect on the you know, yeah. history. I just imagine that if I ever do get a chance to go there, on the West Wing, in the West Wing, or see all the cool stuff, the Oval Office. It, it would take me a long time to process that because I try to imagine what that's what 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 it looks like and what it's like to be there. If you were to say, if I was to ask you what your most memorable day of work was over the eight years in what in the White House, um, what what would come to mind? The day that sticks out to you as the one that was the most emotional or provides some of the best memories that you had? I've never been asked that question. The best, the, the most memorable day. I'm usually asked, you know, what is the, what is the speech that means the most to you? And, and that's maybe, 
maybe I'll choose to, to answer this one. So having grown up, been born in Boston and grown up in Massachusetts when the Boston Marathon bomb was bombed, that you know was, was horrific. It was very personal to me. All these, these, these streets, I, I knew I'd grown up on these streets and spent time there, had family there. And so I, I asked to be the lead speechwriter on the president's uh, memorial remarks at, after the Boston Marathon. And for me, you know, it was a chance to try to help a community and a city and a state that I care deeply about through a very difficult moment. And so to be able to work on that speech, to be able to travel with the president on that trip, and then after it was over, get a call on my phone from one of my uncles from Boston, who I hadn't talked to in a long time, who, who I know was not an Obama fan, but who had, you know, watched that speech in a Boston pub with his buddies, again, probably a lot of them not fans of Obama either, but to call me up and say, you know, that that was a hell of a good speech. Um, did he know, did he know when he called you, you, you were a big part of it? He, did, he didn't know I had been anything. He just was calling to let me know and let, you know, express his feelings. And so for me, as someone from Boston and Massachusetts, to know that it had connected with a, at least one person uh, and had broken through those lines of politics. So on that day, that was just an American from Boston reacting to a politician he didn't particularly like or like his policies. But that that was that to me was what we were doing. That that to me represented everything that we try to do, which is with our rhetoric, with our words, with the speeches, break through and connect with people on a level other than politics and to try to find places where we can kind of move forward together. And so to get that phone call from my uncle after that, that horrific week meant a lot to me. And that just on a personal level. And, you know, that's why I've done what I've done for so long is to try to, you know, create connections like that. That's awesome. I guess finally, I just some current event stuff. I can't help but be concerned about not whether or not politicians I support or a party I support is going to be in power forever. I know that's not the case and that's not supposed to be the case. Um, But I can't help but be concerned about making sure that things are done fairly, if, if that makes sense, as related to elections, not just based upon what happened in 2020, January 6, 2021, but the double down of those sort of incidents and people running for positions that could control elections. Am I, is someone like me being maybe a little bit too concerned and things will work its way out? Or do you think it's a time in this country that you know, it makes sense to be concerned about whether or not our institutions, especially as it comes to elections, are in a safe place. <laughs> so I think anybody who's not concerned isn't paying attention. I mean, no. January 6th, <laughs> you know, we have two major political parties in this country. And in one of the political parties, the vast majority think that the last election was rigged and stolen. That's a problem. Yeah. When it wasn't when court case after court case, review after review, count after count, shows that the elections were free and fair. The idea that there was fraud that would have changed the election, it's not true, it's a lie. Yep. And the fact that a majority of one party believes that is a real problem. And it's a problem that 
yes, as you say, they are actively trying to install candidates in secretary of state positions around the country who might bring to bear their sort of twisted lies on the next election. And so, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is a concern. I mean, if we, if we can't trust the integrity of our elections, then we're lost. This is a big question we're living through right now. Was, was January 6th the end of something or the beginning of something? Yeah. We don't know yet because we're living in, through it in real time. If, it's, if, if this is not dealt with, then it will be the beginning of something and we don't know where that leads. So when laws are being passed that make it harder for people to vote, that potentially have people disenfranchised uh, and that in a tight election might make a difference. Yeah, that's a problem. And so, yeah, all, there are groups and organizations all over the country fighting to, um, to protect the vote at the state level. Uh, there's legislation moving forward at the federal level to make sure that something like January 6th can't happen again. Yep. So, yeah, but this is, this is one of those things where, again, it's, it's, it's tragic that it's become so politicized, but it's become politicized because one person in particular was upset uh, with the outcome of the election and used some of the biggest megaphones in the world to convince millions of people something that was not true. Yeah, it's, I, I would... <laughs> You're right to be concerned. Yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of the voters, maybe more than I know it's more than 50 percent of Republican voters think that there was some tampering with the election. Fine. But I would have to think that a, a number of the people in, in power, Republicans in Congress, know that's not the case. And I'm just surprised of the of the cowardice of so many people. I mean, it's not just a handful of people, so many people that if you put them under a lie detector test, would probably disagree or agree with the fact that the election was not stolen. And it's, it's disheartening because, you know, I'm a competitive guy. I want my sports teams to win. I want my politicians to win. But at the end of the day, if they don't win, I just want to know they lost fairly. And that's the thing I think about. And I wonder that if in 2020 or if the House was Republican, if Joe Biden would have gotten certified as president, you know, and that's concerning whether he's, you know, looks like he's going to run for reelection or whatever it may be. But if a Democrat, a president from the Democratic Party can win an election when at least the House of Representatives is Republican, is somewhat concerning to me. You know, I am optimistic. There's a lot of good stuff being done and a lot of really great people doing a lot of really great things. And um, for what it's worth, Tara, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I think you could tell this was kind of a treat for me. me I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm fascinated with the work that you've done. And I know the work that you continue to do. Part of me, maybe if I develop this love for politics and the world that you're in maybe you know i imagine in my head i could have maybe tried to go that route so that's why these questions come from a place of just genuine curiosity and interest um last question i'll ask you is i guess next few years do you have an idea on what's on the horizon for you well actually um i've started working on a book that tries to pull a lot of these lessons that i learned in 25 years of speech writing including aid for obama um into a book because I think I, I do a lot of workshops. I do a lot of presentations for universities, for businesses, for organizations, and there's a real appetite out there to be better communicators, to give better speeches. And so I've I've started work on a book that that I hope will <laughs> I hope will happen. I hope it'll come out in maybe 2024, and it'll try to just have you know full of stories of working with a Barack Obama in the White House from that lessons that, that we can all use, whether in business or philanthropy or, you know, in our community, whether you have to, you know, speak at your state house or speak at your school board, 
I think there's some basic lessons we can learn from what Barack Obama did that, that are applicable and that can make us all help us, you know, connect with our audiences and actually, you know, achieve the change that, that we're trying to bring about in our communities and, and in the world. So I've started working on that. It's bringing out all the, all the insecurities and anxieties uh, <laughs> that uh, the speech writing did for, uh, for so many years, uh, including my own journey as someone who was uh, for a long time uh, terrified of public speaking and, and, and tried to step back and apply the lessons that I had seen Barack Obama use to improve my own life. And so I want to bring through this book, want to bring that, bring that to a wider audience. So maybe uh, in a year or two, that'll, that'll be something uh, that's out there in the world. I can't wait to read it when it does. Terry Zuplat, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me. Thank you uh, for spending some time with us. And hopefully we'll get a chance to get you to one of the Millennium Alliance events soon. That'd be great. Uh, when, when your schedule um, allows you to, because I think, I think you'd enjoy them and members of ours would, uh, I think, be uh, excited to meet you and get to know you. But yeah, we really appreciate it. I enjoyed this tremendously and hope we get to talk again soon. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.